Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Is that the kingdom of God has arrived. Every single one of them wants us to know we see Jesus declaring the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is drawn near. He tells parables and he says the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like this. And Jesus in his ministry and being God in the flesh shows us the way. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And he's showing us the way of the kingdom. And so in this series, we've been talking the way of the kingdom, how we can walk in that way and become who it is that Christ has designed us and called us to be. And so this week, we're in Luke's perspective of the kingdom. And what's, like I said last week, what's cool about this series is it's setting us up for series in the future to take a deeper dive into each of these books. But Luke is, Luke is, they all have a unique view, but Luke is really cool because Luke was a doctor. A lot of scholars believe that Luke was most likely the only gospel writer who was a Gentile as well. The rest of them were Jewish. And, and Luke is very detail-oriented. And Luke wrote Luke's gospel account, but he also wrote Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And throughout Luke's account, what we see is that he's very, he he puts a strong emphasis on the expansion of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is growing in Christ Jesus. And this movement that Jesus initiated is not just for some people. It's not just for one group of people, but it's actually for all people. And this would have been very challenging to the people of his time period at times that it wasn't just for the, the Messiah wasn't just for this one nation or for the Jewish people, but he, he had come to establish a kingdom that all people were invited to be a part of. And one of the ways that Luke demonstrates this is in his genealogy. So Matthew chapter one gives us a genealogy of the life of Jesus. We talked about that two weeks ago. But in Matthew's genealogy, he just traces it back to Abraham. Luke traces his genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam and to God, showing that Jesus is the Messiah that come that came who was with who was with God himself. He's one with God who came through Adam and is a Messiah for all people, not just one group of people or some people. And then throughout Luke's gospel and then throughout the book of Acts, as the apostles are going out ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, what we begin to see is that Luke paints this picture of Jesus where he's a rejected Savior who goes and rescues those who have been rejected. He's a rejected Savior who rescues those who feel rejected or who have been rejected. And Luke gives us this beautiful picture time and time again of Christ going to people and rescuing people who based off societal norms at that time period would have felt or experienced rejection. And one of the ways that Luke constantly brings the reality of the kingdom to life, the reality of the movement of Jesus to life is by including parables that Jesus told. Jesus would frequently teach in parables. They were stories that brought uh, concepts and ideas to life about the movement of Jesus. And Luke has more parables than any of the other gospel writers. And because of that, there are many parables that are unique to Luke. One of his most famous parable that he has is in Luke 15 that he records Christ's giving of the prodigal son. We've talked about that here before. In fact, last year we did a series on some of Christ's parables called the... um, what was the name? It was Life-Changing Stories was the name of the series. And so this, today we're going to be looking at one of the parables that's unique to Luke that continues to give us a vision of the expansion of the kingdom and, and how we can continue to participate in the way of the kingdom. And it's found in Luke chapter 10. And this is a parable that I've referenced or mentioned many times here before, but we've never done a full sermon or series on it before. And so we're going to jump into this parable. It's a popular parable as well. But it starts with a lawyer coming and questioning Jesus. He was probably a pretty well-educated man for his time. And he comes to Jesus. He said, hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? That's a pretty good question. 
I mean, if you had a chance to talk to somebody who's claiming to be the son of God or one with God, you'd probably ask the same question. Hey, what do I got to do to get into eternal life? That's, that's a good question. So he comes to Jesus and he asks this question. And Jesus turns back with a question because that's what Jesus loves to do. If you read the gospels, Jesus loves to answer questions with questions or answer questions with parables. And he said, well, what does the law of Moses say? And the man responds, well, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, yes, you got it right. You answered correctly. But then this man, he takes it a step further. He starts to push Jesus a little bit. And by his demeanor that Luke describes in this passage, it's almost as if he's testing Jesus. He says this, uh, Luke 10, 29, it says this, the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, Luke lets us in on something here. That this man came to Jesus after this, he's not really coming with an honest question now. He's coming to see what he can get away with. How many of us before, if we're to be honest, you've went to Jesus before, or you've had a conversation with God, and you've already had your mind made up about something, and so you try to open up your Bible or however it is that you talk in prayer, and you're like, I'm going to try to find a verse to justify this action, even though I know it's not right. I'm going to try to see if I can twist this a little bit so that I can just continue to do what it is that I want to do, even though I know it's not the right thing to do. I mean, I've been there before. I don't know if any of the rest of you in here are humans and you've done this before as well, where you're like, hey, I'm going to try to make things out. Anybody done this before? Come on. Anybody? Am I the only one here? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Somebody has done this before. It's at 1030. We can be awake. You can, you can smile and all these things. Like we've done this before. We've all, we've, we've been there before. And that's what this man is doing. He's going to justify his actions. The type of justification he's looking for here is not the type that Paul writes about in Romans. It's a different type of justification. He's going to Jesus to justify his actions and continue to stay the same because he wants to continue to just live his comfortable life with his own expectations and do whatever it is that he wants to do and live in his own little world. You see, he goes to Jesus not looking for transformation, but looking for justification to stay the same. Some, come on, some of us here have done this before. We go to Jesus, I, I, I know I need some transformation, Jesus, but I don't really feel like it right now. So I'm gonna see, hey, can I get you to justify what I'm already doing? Because then I just feel better about me and I can continue to get on with my own plan. But we all know that in the long run, that doesn't typically end up working out very well. So this man goes to justify his actions and he says, who is my neighbor? See, he doesn't ask how can I be a better neighbor? He asks, who is my neighbor? He wants to know, Jesus, who can I let in and who can I kick out? He wants to know, hey, Jesus, what are the rules? Hey, Jesus, and Jesus, Jesus is like, I'm not gonna play this game. <laughs> I'm not gonna play this game. And so then Jesus responds with a parable. And this parable would have been mind-boggling to many of Jesus's listeners. It would have rattled their world and so I've broken up this story into three different parts so that we can kind of start to see ourselves in this story a little bit and we can see what it is that Jesus is revealing to us about the kingdom and the way of life in the kingdom that every one of us has been invited to live in. So part one, we see part one of the story, the not so good neighbors. These are the not, these are the not good neighbors, the not so good neighbors that we start off with in the story. Have any of you ever been reading a book or watching a movie before and all of the sudden the hero becomes the villain? And you become a little bit uncomfortable with this. You're like, oh, this is, this is a little strange because I really liked that person. I really liked that character. And they're actually evil. They're actually a villain. 
I can't, I don't know if I can, my heart can handle this right now. I was recently watching an animated superhero movie, and I'll try not to spoil it for you because I know you're all going to be dying to watch this film after I tell you about it. Uh, it was called Injustice. It's a, it's a Justice League movie. And like I said, I know you're all, oh, I can't wait to watch this animated film. Uh, Scott, you spend your time so wisely. But anyway, so I, I was watching this film. And in this film, I'm not going to tell you how because I don't want to spoil it for everybody who's going to watch it later. Uh, Superman is set up as the villain. Now, if you have any familiarity with comic books, you know Superman. He's not the villain. Superman's the good guy. Superman's the ideal. Superman is incorruptible. But in this story, he becomes the villain. And as I was watching it, I was, I was getting a little bit uncomfortable. I thought, I don't like seeing Superman as the bad guy. On a surface level, you're like, I don't like this. It's changing the story too much. But then on a deeper level, maybe sometimes I think about these movies too much when I watch them. But I started thinking on a deeper level, I thought, oh my goodness, if Superman can be corrupted, what would it take for me to be corrupted? If someone like Superman could become evil, the one who is the ideal of good, what, if, if, that, if that could happen, what, what, what about me? Like, uh, what would it take for me to, to, to compromise? What would it take for me to do something wrong? And I wonder if that's the feeling that some of us have sometimes on a subconscious or a deeper level when we see these stories of the hero becoming the villain. It's, oh, oh my goodness, if that person, what? And, and we start to feel, because we're trying to get into the story a little bit, and it makes us uncomfortable. That's, I feel how many of Jesus' listeners would have felt when he starts to tell this parable. Because he starts to set up this story where there are these characters involved who would normally be seen as heroes in their context. But he, but he almost sets up a structure where they're not the heroes, but they could potentially be the villains. As they are the people who the other people listening to this story would have expected. Yeah, they're the ones who will do the right thing, but they don't. Look at how Jesus starts this parable with the not-so-good neighbors in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 32. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. Oh, this is a good thing. A Jewish priest comes along. This man's beat up. He's in a horrible spot. A priest, certainly he will help this man. Certainly he will be there for him. But look at this. But when he saw the man lying there, so he's walking up. He saw the man lying there. And he crossed to the other side of the road. I'm not going to say who, but I've been with people before. I'm walking down the street with them, and they'll see someone. They say, we need to get to the other side of the road. I'm like, well, okay, what's going on here? And, and I know some people who are like that sometimes. And, and so this priest sees this man. He's like, we got to get to the other side of the road. We got to get away from this mess. So the priest, the guy who should be helping the man who was beaten up on the side of the road, he says, no, I'm not getting involved there. I'm getting out. He crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, someone who's in the temple, the place that represented closeness and proximity to God. This guy comes along, walked over. So this guy walked over. Ah, this guy might be worse. He walked over. He looked at him lying there. But then he passed by on the other side. Yeah, I see you. I see you're in a horrible position, but no, thank you. I, this guy looked at it. He looked this in the, and, and he moved on. And this would have been startling for Jesus' listeners because the priest, that's the example. That's the ideal. The temple assistant, oh my goodness. I mean, that, that's a good guy as well. And, and they pass this guy by? What's Jesus doing here? This would have been very uncomfortable for his listeners. It's uncomfortable for us to consider because while we may not always be in a position 
where we are, you know, seeing someone beaten on the side of the road, physically speaking, how many people do we encounter throughout our week who are beaten up and hurting emotionally, spiritually, mentally? And it's easier to just say, oh, I'm too busy. I got something going on right now. Oh, you know, that just seems messy. I can't get involved with that. How often does that happen to us? And notice I said us. I didn't just say you. I said us. How often does that happen to us? How often is it, you know, and then we have ideologies and worldviews of the time that we live in that cause us to start thinking things about certain types of people that maybe make us think, I shouldn't help that type of person. You know, if, if you adhere to one type of ideology, you might see someone hurting and suffering and say to yourself, a certain type of person hurting and suffering in pain, emotional, whatever it is, and you might see a certain type of person and say, oh, you know, they're, they're privileged. They don't know what true suffering is. They, they finally got theirs. If you adhere to a certain ideology, you might think that. You might think, oh, they're privileged. They're going to get theirs now. They don't know what true suffering is. Or if you adhere to another type of ideology, you might see someone who's suffering, and you might think to yourself, oh, those type of people, they're always looking to take advantage. They're going to learn their lesson now. Because we've allowed our news networks and stations to tell us how we should see other people as opposed to the cross telling us how we should see other people. But if we look at people through the lens of the cross, we recognize that every person can experience pain. We recognize that every single person could be at a spot. Okay, yeah, maybe, maybe the, oh, this person, they're privileged. They have this, they have that. Doesn't mean they can't be hurting. Oh, these people over here, they're always taking advantage. They're doing this. That doesn't mean that they can't be hurting. Guess what? All of us have probably been in similar positions to that before, and Christ still loved you. Christ still loved me. Christ still chose to give his life for you. People love to say things like, oh, that person, they might be hurting, but you know what? What's the context? Let's wait to find out the context. Do you know that Christ knew the full context of your pain and he still chose to give his life for you? We love to say things like, what's the full story here? What's, the, what's really going on? Christ always knew what was really going on with you and me. And he still said, I love you and I have something for you. We, 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 love, we love to say things, you know, these things that build up walls. We, uh, you know what, that person, yeah, they're going through some stuff right now, but they knew better. That person knew better. So you've never done something before where you knew better and you did it anyway, and then you needed somebody's help to get out of it. You've never been there before. Come on, let's be honest with one another right now. I think we've all been there before. So our excuses push us away from engaging with other people. Our excuses can push us away from helping hurting people. And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking, I am not talking about that person that you've been working with for three years, five years, 10 years, where you've gotten to a point where you've said, hey, you know what? You have placed me in a savior complex. I've done all I can do for you. I am praying for you but you got to figure some stuff out. I'm not talking about that person where you, where you have to cut off something because this relationship is now not only hurting you, but it's hurting other people around you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person in your life or the person in my life who we might be aware of, but we don't help them because we're just assuming things about them, so we move on. 
When that happens, we're no better than this temple assistant or, or, or better than this priest who should have been the people to say, we're gonna help him and care for him and then move on by. We as the church have been called to something greater. We've been called to something higher. Don't get me, there's gonna be some encouragement in this message too. I'm not trying to make everybody feel bad today. I, I know this is tough, but I want us to take a good look in the mirror and, and make sure that, because here's the deal. When we talk about difficult things like this, it's not so that you feel worse about yourself. It's so that you can see who it is that you can fully become in Christ. It's so that we can get roadblocks out of our way and see who it is that Christ has fully called us to be so that we can live in the fullness of the abundant life that he's given to us. That's why we wanna get these things out of the way. So here's an application question that we can all ask ourselves today. Who have you been overlooking? Who have you been overlooking? If you're taking notes, write that down. Maybe ask yourself, who have I been overlooking? Who's someone that you're aware of? That maybe you've assumed some things about them, so you just pass by them because it's easier to do that than get involved in the mess. Who have we been overlooking? My friend John Davidson earlier this week shared with me this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that I think is appropriate for this question. He said, how responsible am I for the well-being of my fellows? To ignore evil is to become an accomplice to it. I think it would be appropriate to take evil and, and flip that with other words. To ignore pain is to become an accomplice to it. To ignore hurt is to become an accomplice to it. To ignore somebody who is struggling is to become an accomplice to it. If Christ has ministered to us and given us grace and mercy and love, then we as ambassadors of Christ are to carry with us that grace and mercy and love for others. So then the second question, that one was a personal one. This one is collectively for us as the church as we grow together. And this is a good question for us to ask. What do people see when they see the church? What do people see when they see the church? Now, I'm aware of many great and awesome churches who when their communities see them, they see light and life and love and hope. And to be honest, I I really believe that's what people are starting to see when they see New Story Church. People are just learning about us. We're still young. We're still new. And I want to thank you for being a church that says yes to God. I want to thank you for being a church that we are working to be life and light and hope to the community around us. But I want us to always keep this question in front of us because I never want us to be a church that shrinks back and becomes a holy huddle. I want us to be a church that is always faced outward and saying, how can we be light? How can we be life? How can we be love? How can we be hope? How can we help hurting people? Because that's what we've been called to do as the church. I try to keep up with things that are going on in in the Christian news and and, in media and and stuff like that. And not too long ago, I, I saw something from a Christian leader who said, it's time to declare war on deconstruction. Now, some of you, you know what deconstruction is. Some of you are like, what exactly is deconstruction? Some of you might remember the series we did on deconstruction back in October. And I don't have time to go into all the, uh, what is deconstruction and all this, because it, it is complex. But simply put, deconstruction, it, it, people who are deconstructing is a movement of mostly young people, but not all young people, who found themselves in a spot where the faith that they were given is not lining up with their life experience. And so now they're breaking their faith apart and saying, who is Jesus? And they're asking difficult and tough questions that sometimes make people uncomfortable. But we talked about in the series, one of the reasons that people deconstruct, we talked about a bunch of reasons why people find themselves in deconstruction. And there's so many reasons I don't have time to get into today. But one of the central reasons that people find themselves on a journey of deconstruction is because they've experienced some type of spiritual, sexual, or manipulative abuse within the church. 
And so when I heard somebody say, it's time to declare war on deconstruction, my heart was broken. At first it was infuriated. I thought, are you kidding me right now? But then my heart was broken. Since when are we as the church supposed to be the people who declare war on people who are hurting and broken and questioning and wondering and saying, where can I find a place where I belong? Since when are we supposed to be the people who declare war on people who are abused and rejected? Since when are we supposed to be that? Since when is that who we are supposed to be? We as the church are to love others as Christ loved us. And so that says, hey, we see people who are hurting and we are going to be light. We are going to be hope. We are going to be quick to listen and slow to speak and help others who find themselves in that space. And so New Story Church, thank you for being a church that we are growing in that direction and we are going to keep being that church. And we're going to continue to work with other churches who are working to be those kind of churches as well because we as the church exist to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, hope to other people, and not say we're here to keep hurting people who are already hurt. No, we are here to help hurting people. We're not going to ignore it. We are going to jump right in it, church. That's who we're going to be. Come on, give yourselves a hand. Thank you for being that kind of church. I am honored to be your pastor. It's a privilege to be here with all of you, and we're going to keep that as our focus, church. Secondly, part two in this story, we see the despised neighbor. The despised neighbor. So, Just to give you a little bit of context, Jewish people and Samaritan people in this time period, they did not like each other at all. Racial tension, it was bad. It was bad. Jewish people referred to Samaritans as half-breeds. They didn't get along. And so the fact that Jesus would then take this story with two, two Jewish leaders and say, yeah, they didn't help the guy. And then he brings a hero into the story. A Samaritan would have been like, oh, Jesus, what are you doing right now? Jesus, you're really, you're really messing with our worldview right now. You're really messing with things. And they bring in this guy who everybody else would have seen as despised neighbor. It's actually the word Jesus uses to describe him in Luke chapter 10. The scripture says this, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, He felt compassion for him. He didn't come up with all these excuses. He didn't think he was too busy. He didn't say, oh, that's a Jewish man. He probably hates me anyway. Nope. He stopped and he felt compassion for him. And I love that Jesus uses that word despised because that's the same word that Isaiah the prophet used to describe Jesus in Isaiah 53, that he was, that Jesus, the Messiah would be despised and rejected. This unraveling, that picture that a rejected savior comes for people who are rejected, but he doesn't just rescue them. He gives them a purpose as well. That's what he does for the Samaritan. He gives this man purpose and dignity. And he stops and he pauses. He pauses long enough to feel compassion for this other man. Sometimes for us to feel compassion, we have to be willing to pause. And I get it. It is tough to pause because I like to be on the move. I got things to do. But he paused long enough. And I wonder... There's a possibility that if the reason he was able to resonate with this man who was hurting physically is because he had hurt so much emotionally, his feeling as if he was despised. I wonder if the reason he was able to extend compassion towards this man who was hurting physically is because he had been hurting so much emotionally as being known as somebody who was despised and rejected. 
It reminds us that God doesn't waste pain. And sometimes he will use your pain to then help somebody else. Oftentimes after you have risen from the ashes with Christ, he will then send you back into that place with somebody else so that they can rise from them as well. So he sees and feels compassion for him. And look at what happens. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn. When he, took, when he took care of him, the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If this bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Yeah, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. This guy is unbelievable. He doesn't just bandage the guy up and say, hey, you're going to be good now. He then takes him to an inn, makes sure he's cared for, and he covers his bills. This guy's unbelievable. And so I want to give you from this Samaritan, this is not going to be on the screen, but if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Four characteristics of a good kingdom neighbor. Four characteristics of a kingdom-minded neighbor. If we're going to walk in the way of the kingdom, the kingdom of God that has arrived on earth that is in heaven, if we're going to be kingdom-minded people as Christ has wired us and designed us to be, what are four characteristics of a kingdom neighbor? First is this, a kingdom neighbor will show compassion. A kingdom neighbor will pause long enough to feel compassion for somebody. A kingdom neighbor will pause long enough to say, what is this person going through? I want to feel and I want to be in that space with them. A kingdom-minded neighbor will feel compassion. Secondly, so first one's compassion. Secondly, a kingdom-minded neighbor will cross the line. A kingdom-minded neighbor will say, oh yeah, that line's there. I'm not supposed to associate. Well, I don't care. I'm going to step right over this line and I'm going to help this man. I'm going to step right over this line and I'm going to help him. There's this great quote from Pastor Craig Rochelle, he said, as the church, we don't draw lines to keep people out. We cross lines to bring people in. That's the people that we are called to be. So this man crosses a line to bring him in. So cross the line. Thirdly, kingdom-minded neighbors will initiate. They don't sit around waiting for God to do something. They initiate and say, God is moving, so I'm going to move with him. Kingdom-minded neighbors initiate. This man initiated to help this other man. And then lastly, I know this is quick. So kingdom-minded neighbor will show compassion. They'll cross the line. They will initiate. And a kingdom-minded neighbor will go above and beyond. A kingdom-minded neighbor will go above and beyond. Notice this man didn't just put bandages on him and say, hey, you go figure it out. No, he put bandages on this man, took him to an inn, covered his costs and said, hey, if there are any more costs, I'm gonna take care of them. He went above and beyond. He did way more than what was necessary. Why? Because he put this man in a position where he wasn't just at a spot where he could figure things out. He said, no, I'm going to set this man up for success. I'm going to restore him so that he has now a new responsibility. He has value and dignity and he can move forward. As we become kingdom-minded neighbors and we grow as being a kingdom-minded church, New Story Church, let's continue to be people who say, we are going to go above and beyond. I'm so thankful. Yesterday, we had a group of people who showed up to the Sheridan Park Life Center, which is right around the corner from here. And if you weren't there, I'm not saying anything bad about you. People get busy on Saturdays. It's all good. It's all good. But if you were there, thank you so much for being there because the Sheridan Park Life Center is right in the Sheridan Park around the corner from here. And we were there doing all these different, they were doing work projects. People were doing stuff in an attic. I couldn't keep track of all the people were using nail guns. You don't want me to use a nail gun. I'll, I'll, I'll hurt somebody with it. Um, it wouldn't be good. But so I was walking around handing out Panera bread to people who were working. I was like, hey, who wants a, who wants a bagel? That was my job because I, I would break something. And, but 
good, but we were there and we were, we were helping out in the Life Center and there were people there who were going above and beyond, who were going out of their way because the Life Center is a space that's doing career training for adults in that community. They're offering food to adults in that community. They're bringing the message of the gospel. And what I was just like, wow, this is a church that's going to cross the line, who's gonna go to a place that we don't always go to. This is a church who's gonna say, we're gonna go above and beyond. And church, that's who we are now and that's who we're gonna continue to be. We will not stop being that kind of church. And so if you're saying, I wanna be a good kingdom-minded neighbor, yet come to New Story Church because that's who we're gonna be. We're gonna be kingdom-minded people who initiate. We're gonna be kingdom-minded people who cross the line, who show compassion and go above and beyond. So for those of you there yesterday, thank you. And for those of you saying we're a part of New Story, we're on the story team, we're gonna keep doing that in the future because this is the way of the kingdom and we are going to be a kingdom-minded church and we want all of you to be a part of it with us. So part three, go and do. Go and do. This is where it gets practical. This is where it starts to get challenging, specifically for this guy who came and asked Jesus a question. How many of you grew up with Mr. Rogers growing up? Anybody? Anybody growing up with Mr. Rogers? How many of you still love him? How many of you watched it back and said, I think it's a little bit slow, a little bit, a little bit slow? Yeah, there's some people here. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I loved it growing up. And then a couple years ago, I watched uh, the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? But he would come out and he would, he would start with a song about the beautiful day in the neighborhood. And obviously, you know, he hadn't been to Buffalo this past weekend. But anyway, so it was still a great day. It was just a lot of wind and snow. But, and I was honestly always a bigger fan of Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood with Eddie Murphy, if anybody ever saw that on SNL back in the day. But anyway, so he, he would come in and he would sing this song about, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And he would almost plead in the song. He said, please, won't you be my neighbor? And what I love about that statement is it carries with it the assumption, Mr. Rogers saying, hey, I'm going to be your neighbor. Please, won't you be mine? Inviting you in to be, hey, I'm going to be a neighbor. Please, won't you be mine? What a lot of people don't know about Mr. Rogers, he was actually ordained by the Presbyterian Church to minister to children through television. He was a a Christ follower, and I imagine that he would have been motivated by stories like this one that we just looked at. And he might have even been motivated by these words of Jesus that he then spoke to this lawyer. Look at this in Luke chapter 10, verses 35 through 36 and 37. Now, which of these three, he said to the man, would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus Jesus asked, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Notice he couldn't even say the Samaritan. No, the one who showed him mercy. I imagine he's probably like, oh, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Go and do, go and do, go and do. Every single one of Jesus' parables and teachings carries with them. Go and do, go do something, go become now. Don't just listen to this and take in more head knowledge. No, no, go and become. And Jesus completely flips this thing around because the man started with this. He said, hey, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus, I want to know where I can draw the line. Jesus, I want to know who I can keep in and keep out. I want to know who is my neighbor. Jesus, I want to know who I can define as neighbor based off of my preference because I want to justify my actions. That's where it started. And Jesus then completely flips it and says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you get away with that. He says, go and do. Instead of asking who is my neighbor, Jesus said, go and be a good neighbor. Instead of asking, who is my neighbor? The question is, how can I be a better neighbor? Instead of asking, who is my neighbor? Maybe we should say, I'm going to be a good neighbor. Please, won't you now be my neighbor? 
It starts with us initiating. It starts as us, it starts with us becoming. Instead of saying, I am going to wait for somebody to show me love and grace and mercy. We as the church step up and say, we are going to be the people who bring love and grace and mercy and life and light and hope. Instead of sitting around waiting, who is my neighbor? Who can I bring in? Who can I give out? No, that's what religion does. The way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom says, I am going to go and be a good neighbor no matter who the person is. Go and do. Go and become. This is our charge. Jesus goes on a number of chapters later to say this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He said, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Notice he doesn't say, the son of man came to to just stand around and hope that someday people will maybe hear about him and then maybe go to like a religious experience or something. And then, you know, maybe they'll give their life to him. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, oh, the son of man came and he's just going to hang out here. And then, you know, maybe somebody, somebody, you know, maybe somebody will just find out about me. No, no. Son of man came to earth to show us the way and he came to seek and to save. He's on mission. He's on the move. He's got stuff to get done. And that's who we're going to be, church, as a kingdom-minded church. We're going to be seeking and saving on the move. We got things to do. And as soon as Jesus, made, at the, Jesus making that statement in Luke 19, it came right after an event where he interacted with a man named Zacchaeus, who nobody liked. He was a short little tax collector. He was taking advantage of other people with his money and his resources. He was hurting other people. He was doing things that were, that were it, was just, it was just bad. Like people hated him because he would lie to people. He had a lot more money than other people. He was, he, was a, he was a dirty businessman in a lot of ways. He was like, I'm just gonna, and then nobody wanted to be around him. And so then Jesus finds Zacchaeus, sees him up in a tree. And this man that everybody else hated and avoided, Jesus said, hey, I'm coming to your house today. I'm gonna come to you today. This man that was rejected by everybody else. And some people would say, well, for good reason he was rejected. He was, but Jesus said, I don't care what reason you have. I'm going to his house today. And Jesus went to his house today. And then after meeting with Jesus, Zacchaeus was transformed. I, I, he started, I'm sure at first people were like, oh, yeah, this is Zach pulling another fast one on us right now. I'm sure that's what they thought at first, but he was truly transformed by Jesus and people were stunned by it. And Jesus said, yes, because the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost, to go talk to the rejected, to go talk to the hurting, to go talk to the broken, because he knows what it feels like to be rejected and despised and then be fully broken on a cross and rejected by people who should have known who he was. But then he came back from the grave in life and in resurrection. And so his kingdom is now alive on this earth. And as we follow after him, we become like him. And we aren't here to just stand around and hope people find out. No, we are here to seek and to rescue and to bring life and light and be a good neighbor to whoever it is that we find ourselves with. That's who we're going to be, church. And I'm thankful that that's who we have been as a church. And I'm calling us as a church to continue to be those people. Thank you, New Story Church, for being a church of kingdom-minded neighbors. And as we move forward today, may this be an encouragement to you. May this be a charge to all of us that we're going to take it a step up and we're going to keep being kingdom-minded neighbors. We're going to continue to be people who go and do. We're not going to be the not-so-good neighbors who avoid difficult situations just because they're difficult. We're, we're going to be, even if people see you as despised, oh, you see, if you're seen as despised in the, in the ways of the world, then you have just a place in the kingdom of God. 
just the place. If you see despised, if you're seen as despised in the worldly systems, guess what? God is setting you up to be delivered within his system and he's gonna use you to bring others to be delivered by him. And so we're gonna continue to be a kingdom-minded church. This is the way of Jesus. So church, let's move forward. Let's be people who always show compassion. Let's be people who cross the line even when it's uncomfortable. Let's be people who initiate. And together, church, let's go above and beyond so that his kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven.